you can have the right information between your ears. You know, you can have all the theological knowledge in the world. And yet, if you can't control yourself, if you haven't allowed God to foster this in your life, this fruit of the spirit, of course, Galatians 5, then you are very vulnerable and you can end up doing things that really hurt other people. How disciplined are you? That's a question that all of us would answer a little bit differently. And honestly, I would answer it differently maybe on a Monday than I would on a Friday. It changes from day to day, maybe even hour to hour. Our discipline is something that especially this time of year, we wrestle with. Have I created the right goals? Can I actually follow through on those goals? In today's podcast, we get really practical about this. I have Drew Dick on the podcast. We have a great conversation about discipline, about his book, Your Future Self. Well, thank you. And I just want to remind you, we've got all kinds of tools that can be helpful for you guys, especially one called the Goal Creation Journey. If you struggle to plan your goals, and I used to struggle to be able to plan my goals. If you struggle to be able to create space, and I used to struggle to create space. If you struggle to actually know what is the right thing to do, and again, I used to struggle to do this. So what do we do? We created a tool around this. This is one that helps you clear space. It helps you figure out your next right thing and actually make a plan and create a process to be able to do that. So hopefully you have some new habits for this year, whatever they may be in your health, in your family, in your leadership. And also, if you are interested in coaching, we have some open coaching slots available for one-on-one coaching, but we offer every January something called the Double Espresso Coaching Sessions. And this is an opportunity to clarify your goals, to clarify what's next for you so that your overwhelm can go down. We found that as clarity goes up, overwhelm goes down, and you can make some progress on what used to feel foggy. So here's what we do. We open up our schedules as our Stay Forth coaching team for two days a year. That's January 15th and 16th. And we open up our schedules for one-hour sessions where it is like a double shot of espresso to the veins, where we go quickly into that. That includes a tool as well that will set you up for your goal planning process and hopefully execution. So you're looking back a year from now saying, look what I accomplished. That's what we want for you, to take that clarity up and that overwhelm down, set you up for success for 2020. That is January 15th and 16th. We'll continue to leave those slots open until they are gone. So go get them while they're there. We've created a discounted one-hour price for those. So go to stayforth.com backslash coaching to reserve your double espresso coaching session. And now onto my interview in this great conversation with my friend, Drew Dick. Well, I'm excited to have Drew Dick on the line today. Drew, thanks for joining us for the podcast, and thanks for your recent book that I just finished, Your Future Self Will Thank You. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you. I'm looking forward to this. So um, a little known fact, I met Drew at a conference several years ago. Um, I remember he handed me his card and said, if you get any article ideas, and I said, always too many. The problem is not many of them are very good. And I ended up sending him a few pitches. And one of them was called Staying is the New Going. And um, you threw that up on the publication you were curating and editing at the time. And that ended up turning into my first book. So that uh, 
I don't think has ever gotten you a free lunch, but at least it gets you credited in the acknowledgement. So, um, Drew, grateful for you spotting that message even before I did. Oh, man, I'm just happy I played that role. Um, yeah, that's right. And I think we, we published that on ctpastors.com. Uh, and I still have a, a role there as an editor, contributing editor. And it went nuts. Everyone is like, yes. I mean, the emphasis, as you know, is always on you need to go. You need to like leave and go overseas, especially somewhere exotic. And you just flip the script on that. And it was an excellent article. I encourage people, if you haven't read it or the book, check them both out. Well, it's it's interesting is even in that process, that's something I literally do for a living in coaching and consulting and helping writers. And yet there's things about our own thoughts or ideas or messages we can't even see. So that to me was such a good reminder. We need each other. The kind of that mirror. I don't think if you'd have pulled that thread, then that would have ended up in print. And obviously there's a kind of a chain reaction of opportunities that comes from that. So um, Drew, you do a lot in addition to just being a dude and a dad and in the trenches, you share a lot of your heart and soul with us in your future self will thank you. But just give us kind of an intro, crack open your life for us in a typical week in your household. Sure. Uh, it's not super glamorous. I'll warn you right out at the outset. Uh, but I am, I work from home. Um, I am an editor and, and writer. Uh, my day job is with Moody Publishers as an acquisitions editor for them. Uh, and they're in downtown Chicago. I am out just 15 minutes north of Portland, Oregon in the beautiful Northwest. I work from home. Sometimes I'll confess in my pajamas trying to keep my three little kids out of my office. So my days are spent wrestling words into submission, um, either other people's or my own. When I can get a little extra time, I like to do my own book projects and and articles uh, here and there. Awesome. I would imagine, Drew, that that makes you better at both, right? When you read other people's messages, it makes you a better writer. And when you write, it would make you a better editor. Is that a fair assumption? I think so. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you another thing it does, at least, um, you know, sometimes you can, you can read books and go, oh, you know, I, I could do better than that. And, and writing a book, though, at least for me, is a very humbling process because, of course, it's very difficult. Uh, often you think, oh, this, you know, you're going to be able to do it better than you can or quicker than you can. And so you have a lot more grace for other people's writing <laughs> when mm. you have to uh, do it yourself and realize it's how a great equalizer. It is. Amen. And I think it's the same probably for like speaking and preaching, too, right? Uh, it's easy oh, to be yeah. the, you know, the critic who folds his arms in the back uh, pew and goes, ah he missed that point or he didn't do that right. Or she missed, you know, drop the ball on this, uh, on this sermon. Uh, but then yeah, get up there yourself and you see how hard it is. Yeah, absolutely. So you took on probably the most unsexy topic I can imagine right now in our culture, yet so helpful to write a book on self-control. Why in the world did you do that? Yes, <laughs> you're right. I, I remember like that was one of my first thoughts when I decided to tackle it. I was like, okay, I think this is important, but I realized it's not exactly like the sexiest topic, right? People don't, uh, you know, sing songs about self-control or I don't think so anyway, or write movies about it. Um, anyway, so I realized it had a bit of a bad rap and yet the reason, and I wish I could say I was drawn to it out of academic interest or something, but the truth is, you know, when I looked at my own life, I realized that especially as I look back on my life, I was deficient in this area. Uh, and that's not to say I was doing anything especially sinister, but just when it came to trying to be consistent with the spiritual disciplines in my life, 
uh, certain work habits. I realized that I knew what I, I should do. And often I was very excited about the projects I was working on or growing spiritually. But then when it came down to actually doing it, I wasn't. And I realized it traced back to a lack of self-control. So initially I wasn't even thinking about writing a book. I was just reading various books and, and papers about this topic, kind of just for myself. And then it ended up morphing into a book project as I started to realize, hey, this this stuff's interesting, at least I think it is, and it may be helpful to other people. And so that that's my hope for the book. That's good. Well, thanks for letting us into your journal entries and confessionals. I, I mean, we write the best <laughs> right. stuff to ourselves first, right? I mean, that's the the gift first to us. So I, I absolutely love that. On page 19, you say this, most of us view self-control like the overdue dentist appointment, necessary but dreaded. Self-control is boring, confining, the cop that shows up and shuts down the party. So tell me why this message is so timely right now in our culture that you would take all that time and all that energy to write a book on it. Sure. Yeah. uh, Well, I think First of all, like I mentioned, it's an unpopular virtue in our our culture. I'd say we're much more about self-expression than self-control. And self-expression is fine. Uh, But whenever you talk about restraining your desires, people get a little little worried, uh, thinking that maybe you're going to hamper who they are. Um, And so it is a little unpopular. Of course, it's it's impossible, I would say, to escape when you read scripture, uh, the need for self-control. And then I think, too, in the broader culture, we're starting to see a, a dawning awareness of the importance of self-control because we've seen a lot of people engaging in a lot of bad behaviors recently. And, of course, I'm thinking of like the Me Too movement that's exploded over the last couple of years, how it's hit the church as well. And there's a lot going on, right, when those things happen. But at the very least, to me, it's a grim reminder of the importance of this topic um, because you can, you can have the right information between your ears. You know, you can have all the theological knowledge in the world. And yet if you, if you can't control yourself, if you haven't allowed God to foster this in your life, this fruit of the spirit, of course, Galatians five, uh, then you are very vulnerable. And this is the most sobering thing to me. You can end up doing things that really hurt other people, uh, not only yourself. So, that that I think, you know, that puts it in stark relief. Then there's also just the aspect to this, you know, not the dramatic moral failing, but just it's so essential for your everyday life. You know, just moving through life. I'm thinking of myself right now. I'm in a really busy season with young kids, busy job, um, you know, demanding uh, community and church life. All of these things demand a lot of self-control. Um, and so I just think it's it's a core virtue that we need to get serious about growing in our lives. Agreed, man. I Drew, I loved the book and I would say balance. I think it was more of a tension between the, pra- the practical, you talk about brain science and then the spiritual about what does this ancient scripture say about self-control? And I think it's easy to go in one direction. I think it's hard to hold that tension. So thanks for holding that tension throughout the book. I felt like it was equal parts ridiculously practical and equal parts grounded. And, and honestly, that's that's hard to find. I usually have to go to two or three different books to find some of that tension. Uh, one thing that's always fascinated me uh, about this topic of self-control is it always comes back to one experiment called the famous marshmallow experiment. Can you explain that to us and what the results of that tell us? 
You bet. Yeah. Um, I assume a lot of listeners have probably at least heard of the marshmallow experiment. This was a famous experiment that was done, oh, I think in the 1960s. I'm going to maybe get the date slightly wrong, but it was a researcher who uh, basically put these preschoolers to a kind of cruel test. And that is, there was this um, uh, table in the middle of a room that have three and four-year-olds sit there. They'd put a marshmallow or another delicious snack on the table and they'd tell the kids, Listen, you can eat the marshmallow now, or if you resist the temptation and you can hold out for 20 minutes, we'll give you two marshmallows. <laughs> right? So they're, they're trying to test their ability to delay gratification. And as you might guess, they didn't do very well because they're little kids. Uh, most of them would cram it right into their mouth at the start. Um, others, and it's funny, there are videos of this, would do would employ certain coping mechanisms to deal with the temptation, like they would pull their hair or turn away from the marshmallow or even pick it up and pet it like it was a small animal. <laughs> anyway, um, and so, and that's all the, the experiment was at the time. They were just trying to, you know, chart how well these kids did at avoiding the temptation of the marshmallow. Now, this is where things got interesting because the researcher had uh, children that were about the same age as the participants in the study. And he noticed that as his kids got older and they would talk about some of the other kids that were participants in the studies that went to school with his kids, okay, he noticed a pattern. And the pattern was this. The kids that couldn't hold out for the marshmallow at all and ate it right away were getting into trouble at school they weren't getting good grades. Later on as teenagers, they were getting into alcohol and drug abuse. And the ones that were more self-controlled that could delay gratification had way better life outcomes. And so then they did all these follow-up studies. And what they found kind of blew everyone away. And that is that even at that young age, the level of self-control that these kids demonstrated was highly predictive of later life outcomes. And that's so significant because there are so few things from childhood that predict um, how things are going to turn out for you in adulthood. And th thank God. <laughs> um, but this was one of those. They always thought that intelligence was the key. Like if you just had a high IQ, uh, you're going to have a great life. Or uh, a lot of educators believe self-esteem is, is the key. And those things certainly help. But far more powerful actually was self-control. So that's, that's something that kind of put it on the map for a lot of people. And and showed them the importance of self-control, that it wasn't sort of this kind of optional, nice-to-have character trait, but something that's essential to your life. And I'm hearing about it everywhere. I mean, from authors like Charles Duhigg and The Power of Habit, I mean, it's coming into, um, not, not into vogue, because I don't know that it's ever in vogue, but it's coming into focus as this is crucial. We talk about in coaching all the time, that it's about delayed gratification and every investment in life, period, is based on delayed gratification. So I love that you fleshed that out. Talk a little bit about nature versus nurture and what you uncovered in your research. Is that something that is hardwired in you or is that something that grows over time? Yeah, and this was, I was really interested in this question because I'm not the kind of person, if I was one of those kids with the marshmallow experiment, I'm pretty sure I would have just eating the thing right away. Uh, and so I was a little discouraged because you think, well, those kids didn't have a lot of time to develop self-control. So is this something that just naturally some people have higher levels of? And I talked to some sociologists about this that have studied this topic. And the answer is yes, some people 
just like some people are like physically stronger naturally, some people have naturally higher levels of willpower, self-regulation, self-control. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is um, that uh, willpower and self-control are kind of like a muscle. So the more that you use them, the stronger they get. And so even if you kind of have, if you're suspicious that maybe you have a lower (laughs) level of self-control, if you um, exercise, if you do the hard thing, if you um, you commit to intentionally building healthy habits into your life and and fostering self-control, you can grow in this area. And that was tremendously encouraging to me. Yeah, so, so helpful. We can all grow in it. And again, I love the research behind that. Um, you talk about in the book how self-control in many ways um, is kind of seen as maybe self-help, uh, something to kind of pull a string and accomplish my goals. So talk a little bit about the difference maybe between that self-help kind of goal-oriented driven um, kind of uh, self-control and investment within the book, and then a biblical self-control with the, the kind of grounding that we read about in Scripture. What's the difference between those two? Yeah, and I think it's a huge difference. Uh, I read a lot of secular literature when I was studying for my book, and a lot of it was very helpful. Like you said, this seems to be kind of in vogue, this topic. People are talking about willpower and habits and grit, and those are all related topics. And a lot of those books were helpful. But one thing that rubbed me the wrong way about a lot of them is they conveyed this idea that you can develop personal discipline and self-control to pursue whatever goal you want, right? And it's sort of incidental. Like if you just want to get insanely rich or powerful or, you know, shredded, like you're going to go to the gym every day and have the best body on the beach, um, that those were, you know, it didn't really matter what your goal was. Just develop this and it'll be a means to an end. And as Christians, of course, it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with you know trying to get in good shape or, or, or trying to get in a better financial situation, but ultimately, why we want to develop self-control is not just for ourselves. I think you know it has to be about something bigger than that. It has to be ultimately about loving God and loving others. And the cool thing about self-control, of course, is that it enables us to do that because if you want to be if you want to be faithful to your spouse, say you need self-control. If you want to be generous or kind, you know, basically any virtue that enables you to love others well demands self-control. And here's the other thing. I read some fascinating studies about how when you have the right motive, the right goals, um, and especially if they have a spiritual dimension to them, it actually um, fuels your efforts to attain them. And you have more success in attaining them. So, for instance, uh, uh, say your um, your goal is something rather mundane, like you want to get in better shape. If you are motivated simply by the desire to fit into um, those old jeans or look better in the mirror, that's fine. Uh, but if you think of your body as the temple of the spirit, say you're a Christian, and you you go, I want more energy to pursue God's call on my life the fact that you've imbued that goal with spiritual significance and meaning will actually, it's called a sanctified goal. And researchers study this and they show that people who conceive of their goals in that way actually have a greater degree of success in attaining them. So, I mean, in, in, in a way that's sort of incidental because as Christians, we know we should be doing things for the right reasons anyway, but it actually makes you more effective in accomplishing those goals as well. 
And you talk about how purpose rudders our goals. Share a little bit more about how purpose can actually rudder the goals and the self-control that we want to garner. Sure. Yeah. And I think that's all throughout scripture. When it, when you see uh, the apostle Paul talking about running for the prize, right? His self-control is, um, you know, and he talks about making his body his slave. Uh, and it's not just so he can you know, deny himself pleasure and, and show off how amazing he was. It was so that he could run the race, uh, ultimately being united to Christ and bringing as many people with him as he could. And I think that's how we're wired. I think that's why having, you know, a deep meaning and purpose to your life is so essential that if you don't have that, you'll flounder. Uh, but if you do, then that, that empowers your self-control. Now, at the same time, even having that big goal and that purpose in mind, you do need some strategies that you can implement in your life to jettison some of the bad habits that you've accumulated along the way and replace them with holy, healthy habits. Uh, But yes, that's essential. I think that's the first thing is going, okay, why am I trying to develop discipline and self-control in the first place? (laughs) Because if you don't get that straight, then the the scariest thing to me would be to develop self-control to pursue the wrong things. Right. Mm, uh, but if yep. we can get that that squared away, then we're going in the right direction. Yeah. And I don't know who said it, but it was it's this idea of I'm not as afraid of not accomplishing thing, the things I set out to do as accomplishing the wrong things. Yes. And I think that's a fear deep down that we would dedicate the best of our time and energy toward that. And, you know, the Apostle Paul talking about I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do. And the fact that we have this gift that is research today that can run parallel to scripture, again, Bible and brain science. Um, I love that. I love your encouragement to listen to a sweeter song instead of merely restraining the hand. Talk about that, Drew. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, and I'm going to, I'm going to forget all the details, uh, but there are two uh, Greek epics. uh, And in one, uh, Odysseus uh, uh, has to go past the sirens. He has to sail past the sirens and sirens are those uh, deadly uh, creatures that sing this beautiful song, but of course, if you're lured over to them, they will kill you. <laughs> and so his his, um, his approach is to uh, have the sailors in his boat tie him to the mast of the ship, and he instructs them to stuff their ears with beeswax so that they can't hear the song. He wants to hear it, but he knows that if he's tied up, he won't be able to go to them. Okay. And so um, it's successful. He passes by by um, the, the, the sirens in safety. But then there's another Greek epic that talks about a different sort of approach. And they have a, um, uh, I'm going to forget the name, but a beautiful musician on board who plays a louder, sweeter song. So that even though they go past the sirens and they hear their seductive music, they have a louder, sweeter song that enables them to kind of ignore the siren call. So basically I talk about that story and I, and I think it, it symbolizes two different approaches to temptation in our lives. Uh, one, sometimes it's actually okay. I think to take precautions against temptation so that we don't give in uh, when we, when we encounter temptation, but sometimes too, we need to um, make sure our ears are tuned to the sweeter song um, of God's purpose for us, of the gospel, really, um, and knowing that that we um, have something better to live for and to strive for 
than the sinful and destructive impulses that come along. Does that make sense? Um, oh man, I love it. Yeah, and, so, and I love that there's a uh, Scottish preacher, Thomas Chalmers, who has a great expression for this. He calls it the expulsive power of a new affection. And he talks about how like, you know, resisting sin or living a holy life isn't merely about kind of white knuckling it and going, okay, I'm just going to resist every temptation that comes along. It's just going to bounce off me. But what it's really about is filling up on the things of God, of obeying Jesus's command to come to him when you're thirsty, you know, and what, when you have that, that new affection, it has a way of pushing sin out of your life. And that's an essential part of this topic. I mean, that's that's the story of the kingdom of God. It is, here's something that's so much better, deeper, richer, worth investing in and delayed gratification. And if we don't have that why, again, Simon Sinek is tapping into something. If we don't have a deeper why or purpose that rudders us, then why not? Why not go crash on the rocks? You only live once kind of thing. So, right. just, man, such such a good timely message for us today because there's no shortage of things that are calling our name and notifications on our phone. And I just think today we are constantly marketed to, and much of that is just noise. So man, such a good reminder. I love this reminder you put in there. David Brooks had these two phrases, these two incredible phrases, resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. Why do we forget to invest in the eulogy virtues? Yeah. Well, and what he talks about, yeah, resume virtues are just what they sound like, the things that you put on your resume that that impress other people. Uh, and he talks about how we we put so much work and, and emphasis on those. And yet, when you die and someone gets up and says the eulogy, they usually don't talk about those. They talk about different sorts of virtues. Um, incidentally, I think a lot of the kind of virtues we see in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's it's a matter of prioritizing one over the other. And it's true. I mean, can you imagine if someone was making their resume and they put the fruit of the Spirit on there? It would just be weird uh, because most of the things that we put on a resume are almost the opposite. It's like decisive, um, powerful, competent. You know, I mean, all good things, maybe. My Enneagram but- <laughs> number, like <laughs> right. the food I ate last night. <laughs> Yeah. And, and so, and yet when you think about what ultimately matters, what makes an impact on people, what people are going to remember about you when you're gone, your friends, your, your children, um, it's going to be those eulogy virtues, uh, that, that last and that are ultimately more important. And so, yeah, he had a good, you know, uh, I think it was in his book, the road to character. He talks about, the the need to focus on those and it's hard because the entire broader culture is is pushing you to be more concerned about the 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 virtues that don't matter as much versus the ones that do Mm, that's right so i don't want to spoil the book i don't want to spoil your personal journal entries that you have to us (laughs) and um you know how you're trying to get more disciplined in your own life and you know kind of dispatches from the journey which i you know really appreciated and so normally we ask each guest as kind of the last question as we wrap up uh the episode we say how do you live healthy what are some practices in your life things like that i want to flip the question a little bit how is your life different hopefully more disciplined after writing this book? I mean, it's got to affect you. So how is your life different after writing this book than the struggle of before? Yeah, that's a great question. And really, 
when I set out to write the book, I, I was writing it partly for myself. And like you referenced, I've got little journal entries where I tried to uh, implement some new disciplines in my life. And, and it was kind of two steps forward, one step back as I, as I uh, did these kind of little experiments. Um, and, but it has had a really positive impact. And it's not that I'm some super saint now or I'm in perfect shape, but it has had measurable results in my life. I mean, even when it comes to my physical health, I, I've lost 20, 25 pounds. Uh, now I've still got about 20 to go. So I'm not there. Uh, but just it, it really helped me to study, especially uh, the science behind habits uh, when it came to implementing a, a physical exercise regimen. Um, I also, the biggest thing though, is just the spiritual disciplines that I've been able to build into my life. Uh, I realized, you know, one thing that was preventing me from reading my Bible every morning, something I've wanted to do for a long time was that I'd wake up and grab my, my phone off my nightstand, uh, and automatically jump on social media. And so again, studying about habits just made me realize, oh, wow, I've got this, I've been conditioned to consume content as soon as I get out of bed. And that's fine, but the content I'm consuming isn't the right kind of content. So eventually what I had to do after some you know, false starts was get that phone right off my nightstand, take my big black Bible out of retirement, plunk it down in its place. And so that way, when I rolled out of bed, I was reaching for my Bible rather than my phone. Um, so some simple little things like that. And yet they might seem silly, almost like little life hacks, but the truth is they make a huge difference in your life. Because just starting your day in God's word rather than the cesspool of social media has a huge impact. Um, and getting a little more exercise. Uh, I also uh, learned about bright lines strategies. This is this practice of just implementing these hard and fast rules in your life. Like uh, no phone after 7 p.m. or no ice cream in the house. These kinds of things that just help you actually preserve your willpower because you're not constantly... Uh, distracted by fighting temptation. And so those have had a big impact too. Um, so yeah, haven't arrived, that's for sure, uh, but definitely uh, have gone in the right direction and I'm grateful for the change. Well, Drew, thanks for all of your work, for pulling messages out of people. Um, this book, Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science was a great read for me. If you are interested if you are even thinking about growing in discipline this next year, this is the right time to pick up this book as you think about the myriad of goals you're going to want to plan or resolutions for next year. Um, please read this book first. So, Drew, thanks for this book. Where can people pick it up and where can people track along with you online? Yeah, there's a, a little um, bookstore here in the Northwest called Amazon.com that carries it. <laughs> and, um, well, basically anywhere I, I would... I would like to think books are sold. Uh, you should be able to pick up a copy um, and feel free to reach out to me too. I'm on Twitter way too much. Uh, that's still an area of self-control I have to grow in, uh, but connect with me there. Or if you're in the Northwest, swing by and we'll grab a coffee. Awesome. Well, thanks, Drew. Hey, thanks so much. This is fun. Well, guys, hope that was a helpful conversation for you. We'll have Drew back on the podcast to talk about writing. Many of you guys are aspiring writers. That's a big part of Drew's life, not only as a writer, but he also serves as the editor of Moody Publishers. So we're going to pick his brain later on this year. But as we finish up this episode of the podcast, I just want to leave you with this question. What process is missing in your life? 
What process is missing in your life? Maybe there's something you want to get better at, but you just don't have a process to do that. Maybe discipline has been missing and you just need to have something regular in your schedule that repeats so that you can continue to do that thing that you want to grow in. As always, we hope this podcast has been practical. We want to continue to share this message of hope that you don't have to lose your soul if you're going to lead for the long haul. Thanks for following along. If this podcast was helpful, subscribe, like, share, maybe even comment and tell us what stuck out about this podcast. We will catch you every Tuesday and Thursday as we drop a new episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. Stay forth, my friends. So long.